Welcome to another special edition of the Derek Diamond Experience podcast. I'm your host, Derek Diamond. Thank you again to everyone who listened to last week's look back at my conversation with the legendary Vernon Wells. I mentioned this last week, but if you had told me 15 years ago that I would get to interview Vernon Wells on a podcast, I would have laughed in your face. But it was really fun uh, to go back and listen to that episode. It's one of my favorite interviews that I've ever done on any podcast, and hopefully you enjoyed it as well. This week is going to be the final uh, re-released episode of Feature Presentation. I have decided to bring the show back a little bit early. Um, I'll be talking more details about that in the outro. But I thought I would conclude this run of re-released episodes with another of my favorite interviews with voice actor Laura Faye Smith. Uh, she's mostly known for being the voice of Rosalina in the Super Mario Brothers video game series, but it's interesting as to how this interview came about. Um, I guest hosted an episode of the Open Micers podcast uh, that's done by my co-host on Nerd Cave Retro, Jason Robbins, and his co-host Jacob Craig. Jason couldn't make the episode, so he asked me to fill in for him, and the guest that week was Laura Faye Smith, and a couple of weeks later, got to meet her at Pensacon, and when I was still kind of trying to figure out what to do with feature presentation, I thought, why not have her on as a guest, and it would give her a chance to talk about other aspects of her career, and it's one of those examples that, you know, you don't really know 100% how an interview is going to go. And I know if there are any other podcast hosts that are listening to this, you can understand. Sometimes you just have to let the conversation go where it goes. And this is one of those examples of you, know, you don't know what to expect, but you turn out with a wonderful episode. So hopefully one day I'll get the chance to um, have Laura Faye Smith on the Derek Diamond Experience to talk about other aspects of her career. But this was a really fun chat, and hopefully you enjoy going back and listening to it. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Laura Faye Smith. Welcome to another episode of Feature Presentation with Derek Diamond, where every week we take a deep dive into the trenches of independent filmmaking. I, of course, am your host, Derek Diamond. If you haven't yet, be sure to check out my conversation on last week's show with legendary actor Mr. Vernon Wells. Uh, We really dived into the topic of villains in film and why people are so compelled by them, and he's made such a great career at it. Definitely go check out that episode. But this week, I'm joined with voice actor, actress herself, as well as uh, improv star, Miss Laura Faye Smith. Laura, how are you? I'm great. Good to see you again, Derek. Absolutely. So before we really dive into uh, our our conversation, I I did want to preface. So before uh, Pensacon a couple of months ago, which is a local convention that we have here in Pensacola, We kind of indirectly met through a show that two of my friends do, Jason and Jacob, the Open Micers podcast, because you were a guest on that show 
But yes. Jason wasn't able to make it, so he asked me to fill in for him. And I remember during our conversation, I'm thinking, I've at some point, I've got to get Laura on my show to talk about her career uh, for this audience as well. So appreciate you taking the time. How have things been since since Pensacon, and how how was your time at the convention? I know it was a few months ago, but how, how was it? Pensacon was great. Like we got treated so well. Um, the fans were so great. <laughs> Some just amazing cosplay. That's one of the best things about being at a convention, like in the moments where, you know, you're not talking to anybody. It's just like having a movie like playing out in front of you at all times and the people's creativity and all the costumes and these things they've built and like that element is so fun. And uh, everybody was very, very friendly. It was great. We had a really great time and I'd never been to Pensacola. So it was fun to be there and to go eat at some of the local restaurants. And um, yeah, we just got, we got treated really, really well. And then um, yeah, I've just been here since then and auditioning and working. And then I'm just in the midst of, well, I'm, I'm halfway through an audiobook. I've narrated it. Now I've got to start all the editing. So that's kind of been my life <laughs> lately is just trying to get through that. I have to ask, what restaurants did you go to? Oh, gosh, you're going to uh, try and get me to remember the names. See, I don't remember the names of them. One we had, there, they it was a Gritza Yaya was like one of their signature dishes. Probably the Fish House. Yes, that was the Fish House. And mm -hmm. then there was this really great place. I think it was on the square where we went the last night we were there. That was, um, it was a steakhouse of some kind. And I'm not going to remember the name probably, but it was. Was it McGuire's? I don't know. They, I remember her talking about like Andrew Jackson. Is, is it a place called Jackson's? Yes. Yep. That was yep. it then. Yeah. The doll. She talked about Andrew Jackson. I can't possibly remember the name. It was Jackson <laughs> and it was phenomenal. Like just, just such a good experience, such great staff, excellent food. So yeah, it was, that's where, those are the two main places I remember going. We were supposed to go to Meguiar's actually one night and it was so packed because there were so many people at Pensacon. There was like a group of us, like uh, me and like three or four other people kind of at one point we were waiting for this ride to come get us and they didn't come and they didn't come. And we were like, what's going on? You know, and they were starting to close down the convention center. We were like waiting and waiting. And then finally one of our reps came and he was like, it's so packed. Like the wait for a table is like an hour. And he said, you know, I mean, I can take you there. And we were like, no, we'll just like go get a place near our hotel. So I think we went to crabs actually that night and um which was like close to where we were staying and had a great time like it was actually it wasn't super crowded we'd been in so many crowds all day and then we had like the friendliest waitress and the food was really good and i mean i'll eat anything fried so you know you put me in a place where i can get like hush puppies and french fries and fish fillets i'm happy you're making me wish i live closer to crabs yeah it was good <laughs> yeah yeah awesome and and it was only your second convention that yeah. you had been to. So you, now that you've, you've kind of made your name for yourself in both live action and in voice acting as well, how was it interacting with you know, fans of yours that you say like play the Mario games, which are the voice of Princess Rosalina? Yeah. And we'll, we'll get into all of that a little bit later on. But how, how is that experience meeting the, the fans face to face? It's so great. Like everybody is so lovely and, and kind. And, you know, some people like bring you little gifts, which you're just not expecting at all. Or, you know, I, there was a, a girl because I do a voice for um, more for a game called Genshin Impact, which is like an open world game and more of an anime style of animation. And um, I met a girl and, you know, she was she was like super emotional, you know, because she like really loves the game and loves the character. And that's that's so remarkable to see, you know, like where you just think, oh my gosh, like 
you, you do your work and you do your job. But then when you realize that someone's like, gosh, this was a game that I played and it was important to me during this period of time. And, and you hear that and you just think, because so many people, I think a lot of times look at actors and actors careers as like, oh, so you, you put on funny costumes or you talk in weird voices and people pay you for that real important job. Like I, there, there is a level of sometimes judgment about that. I'm like, well, it's not like you're saving anyone's life. And I'm like, you know, not in the way like a doctor would or something. You're right. That's absolutely true. But entertainment and storytelling is meaningful to people. I mean, emotionally, I think it's really meaningful to people. I think that's why it's endured so long. Like, why has it been around this long if it was absolutely useless and unwanted? Like, why why do we crave art, arts and music and books and writing and theater and all those different types of things if it wasn't, if there wasn't something innate in us as humans? Because Certainly there's plenty of other things to do. You know, if you don't want to watch television or movies or listen to music or play video games, there's a million other things you could do with your time. So. I'm glad you brought that up because as the saying goes, yeah, you may not be curing cancer, but movies, video games, TV shows, they can provide a sense of escape. And 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 because, you know, a lot of people, they don't, grow up with very easy lives so their exactly their, their their way to escape might be to watch you know a movie or a show or you know play mario brothers or play another video game you know i i know i can certainly attest to that you know i a lot of my and plus i grew up an only child so yep. i had to find my With own friend yeah, yeah. yeah, I had to find my own means of entertainment, and that was through exactly. movies and, and video games. So I, I think sure. you're absolutely right. Yeah, and, and I mean, I can certainly think of writers that I like read a lot during a certain phase in my life or certain artist music that like really got me through like a breakup or a sad time or something where it, it made you feel better or like pumped you up in a way that you needed at a certain time, you know, like that stuff exists. And that person's just out there doing their thing, you know, like I'm sure they're always, you know, when you create something, you're, you're pleased when it has a positive impact on people, but you don't know that at the time that you're doing it, you're just doing this thing that you thought was interesting. Or sometimes in some cases, people don't know at all. Like they got cast in a thing and they did it. And then it suddenly becomes a thing. Like it becomes very popular and kind of takes off and captures people's enchantment. Um, and that's fantastic when that does, but you, but I mean, and that's what I think is so interesting when people kind of criticize actors or anyone being like, can't believe you did that project. Didn't you know how bad it was going to be? And I'm like, I guarantee you, most of us do not go into a project going, well, I hope this sucks. I hope everybody who watches it hates it. I hope it's boring. I hope it's a waste of everyone's money and time. You think like when you get that, you know, the way it's been presented to you, maybe the people that were involved, maybe the way it read on the page, but didn't translate to the performance of it, whether it was live or um, televised or whatever. There's a lot of things and that happen in between you reading a script or, you know, getting a project and doing it or something that you're like, who knows who's even going to ever see this? Like, you know, you, you do a little project and you think I'm going to do this once. And then all of a sudden it's like, now it's a series or like, now it's a thing. Like there are plenty of things I've done that haven't taken off at all. And then you're in things that are wildly popular. You have no way to know. It's, it's just kind of sometimes very zeitgeisty too, like really good projects for whatever reason, don't capture anyone's imagination and total crap gets incredibly popular and people just eat it up and it's like junk food for the mind and they love it. And I think there's room for all of it. Like, I don't say that in a judgmental way of like, you know, I, I love certain trash TV. Like I am, I have gravitated towards it at times where I'm like, I have been thinking and solving problems and dealing with stress all day. I want to watch the most mindless thing that I can get my hands on. 
So I never am like, people shouldn't make that. That's trash. I'm like, sometimes you need trash as much as sometimes you need to eat candy for dinner. You know, like that's just a thing. (laughs) It's funny you mentioned that because this past Friday, I had like a really long, really hard day and it kind of encompassed a hard week at work. Yeah. And my my wife brought up the idea, why don't we watch Encino Man? Which is I don't know if you've heard of Encino Man, but it stars Brendan it's Fraser. It's an older movie. Yeah. yeah. It's got Brendan Fraser, Sean Astin, and Paulie Shore. Dumb, mindless movie, but it was exactly right. what I needed. But there there is a a place for that. And I agree with you, nobody sets out to make a, a bad product or a bad movie. Right. But sometimes the badness can actually provide entertainment like in a good Sometimes way the badness can be brilliant too like think about cult classics like i mean rocky horror has become a cult classic but when it came out people are like what is this like i mean obviously it was a stage play first but then all of a sudden when it becomes this movie i mean i'm sure people at first were like and younger generations who come in and learn it at first it's like wait when was this done and why and who and what were people on when they made this and like that's a question or something like the room, right. Which is like a cult classic. So bad. It's brilliant sort of a thing. Like you were literally watching it for that very reason. And, and sometimes that's the, that's the fun of it is watching something that you kind of, that you feel superior in the process of watching that, but that's enjoyable. And then you get movies about the making of bad movies. Exactly. Like the disaster yes. artist. So like there the you disaster go. Artist. Yeah. So in, in talking about movies, shows, and video games, I have to ask, what made you want to get into the crazy world of film and entertainment? You know, I, I became an actor because my sister was doing theater when we were, when I was like in middle school and she was in high school, she's a couple of years older than me. And, um, that was not an area of interest for me at first at all. Like I, that's not what I kind of wanted to do. I wanted to do like cheerleading and all that kind of stuff. But, um, circumstances kind of transpired where my mom asked me to hold off on that for a year because she was having surgery and we lived out in the country and there was nobody to like take me to practice because my sister didn't drive yet and she wasn't going to be able to drive and my dad was at work. So I waited a year. And in that year while I was waiting, I auditioned for a play um, and ended up getting cast. And then I started doing that and I was like, oh my gosh, like this is what I want to do. Like that was one of the first moments in my life where I really like went, I've found my thing. Um, Like that's the earliest memory I have of being like really certain about something. Um, So that was in my life just, you know, as a hobby, like, you know, but then when I went to college, my parents were like, you know, we're not going to pay for you to study acting because you'll never make money doing that. So they basically said, you have to go, but you have to major in some, you can go to college, we'll pay for it, but you have to major in something that you could actually get a job with. So I I majored in English, but it was technically a double major in English and theater because of the level of credits that I had. If I'd gone like one more term, I would have had two degrees. Um, But it was just what I always loved doing. It never felt like work. Like the work that I did for my theater classes never felt like that. And then Um, When I graduated from college and moved to Portland, I just started doing a lot of theater. Um, And then there was like a bit of a small film and commercial market in Portland where I was living. And I started doing that. And it all just kind of like, it was just something that I always wanted to be doing. So I would do other things to make money for sure. Like I had a corporate job and, you know, I was an HR manager and an executive assistant and I did all sorts of things like that. But I was always paid or unpaid constantly doing this other work on the side. And most of the time, luckily enough, I was getting paid. I got paid to improv, which a lot of people don't. Like I was a touring actor with that. And that was always paid work. Um, I got paid to do commercial work. I did some network television. I did Grimm while I was living there, um, Grimm and Loveridge. So 
I just got really lucky like that. I, it was, and it's a thing when you're in a smaller market like that, the pond is a little smaller. Sometimes those opportunities to some degree can be a little easier. They, there aren't as many of them, but you're not competing against as many people. So sometimes like starting in a small market like that can be great. Like it can actually help you start building resume before you move to a place like LA or New York, where many, many more opportunities, just many, many more people competing for them. It's interesting. You're going back to your, your initial discovery of your love for this craft. It's always interesting hearing everybody's story because I say this every week on the show. There's not a how-to guidebook to get into acting, directing, whatever no. the case may be. It, it always hooks somebody. Like once you are hooked by it, there's nothing else that can give you that creative satisfaction. I remember sitting at my corporate job sometimes because I really tried hard to be something else. Like I tried to have like a responsible job with a 401k and benefits because, you know, everyone around you was like, are you crazy? You're going to try and be an actor. Look at, you know, like how, and I was like, you're right. How, like, how am I going to do this? So um, yeah, I had responsible jobs, but I remember there would be times like friends of mine that I had gone to school with or whatever, who were pursuing their dreams and were like, I'd get email blasts or something from them. And, you'd see what they were working on or hear about it. And I remember just like being happy for them, but so envious at the same time, because I felt like I was robbing myself. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, I'm doing this responsible thing over here because I don't know how to not do it because I don't really, I didn't really have anyone in my life saying it's possible. Go ahead, go ahead and try. Um, everyone was kind of like, Ugh, you might end up under a bridge. It seems like a terrible idea. Like there were, I had a lot more of that than anyone saying, why not, why not try? Why not move to LA or New York? Why not do that? Like there, I had a lot of people around me that were more discouraging that idea than encouraging it not to be mean. I think just because they didn't see the possibility in it either. And I don't even think it was an insult towards my ability. It was like, how does one go about doing that? We don't know. So I, I do remember that really visceral feeling of watching people pursue this acting theater performing dream. And because it was mine too, feeling that kind of just ache, you know, when I would see that kind of stuff and just think, why can't I do for myself what I'm seeing these other people do? And it was just a lot of fear, you know, it was like, and just not knowing how and thinking what, what happens while I'm trying to figure that out? Like, do I starve to death? Do I have to move back in with my parents? Like, what does life look like if I, you know, ditch what I'm doing? So I kind of did it while I was doing something else. Like I started building a resume, but I always had another like eight to five job while that was going on for a really long time. So when people kind of are beating up on themselves because things haven't happened like that, I'm like, there are very few people it happens for like that. There are a few and God love them. That's great. I'm happy for them. But it's more people, that, like you said, there's no one path. There's no guidebook. There's a lot of ways around it. And I actually love hearing to interviews with actors as well because it makes you, you go, there's so many different ways to go about it. It opens up the possibility for you too. Cause it's like, oh, well that person wasn't like, you know, 19 years old and had been a series regular. They like trudged along and they thought about giving up many different times and they worked a lot of crummy jobs in the meantime, you know, and they were trying to make it all work. And then at some point something happened. So it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint for most people. Some people get the sprint and God, wouldn't it be nice? It just hasn't been mine. <laughs> no, you're, you're absolutely right. And that, you're right about the fear of failure. And I think that's what ultimately stops a lot of people who want to act or maybe want to write a screenplay or direct. Right. It's the, what if it doesn't work? Right. But I, I find that as I've gotten older and I think, oh, well, you know, I should try new things or I should try this new thing, so on and so forth. 
when I was say like 10, 15 years younger, I would like the fear would have overtaken that because I'd be like, well, it's probably not going to work out. Like I'll talk myself out of it. Right. But you don't know unless you do it. And I find that the, the thought in the back of your mind of what if I would have done that? Cause I, I have regrets too. You know, like everybody does like what, what if I had tried this, would things have worked out differently? So I find that try, trying it and failing cause it may not work, but at least then, you know, but it's exactly. better than not trying at all. Better to live with regrets than remorse, right? Like if you kind of get to the end of your life, it's like the things that you tried that didn't work, you still got something out of that, right? Like you learned from it and, and not to mention certain things that don't work right away. Sometimes I have a habit of weirdly working out later. Like this is such a weird little story, but like I have, I have a very strong teaching background and the way I became a teacher, I had no teaching experience at all. But I had been at an audition and there was a woman who was also auditioning for this play. And while we were sitting out in the hall waiting to go in for our turns and she was older than me, so we weren't even up for the same role. We were talking and we were just like having this really nice conversation. And then I had auditioned for this children's theater a few times um, and I had just auditioned for a show for them and it didn't end up getting cast. But then I got a call from the artistic director and it was that woman who I had met like years prior, I want to say like six years prior or something, it had been a while. And she offered me a teaching job. And I was like, because she had seen my resume back in the office because I had auditioned for this play. And I said, well, I don't have any teaching experience. And she goes, I just got a feeling you'll be good. And I was like, oh, I don't know why you think that. Cause I don't, I mean, I honestly have no idea what I'm doing. And so I taught this class and I made a ton of mistakes and I was like, they will never ask me back. And they did like she, she personally liked me. And it was that human connection of us just sitting and talking that day at an audition for a play. It had nothing to do with the place that she worked. Um, And I didn't know where she worked and I didn't know who she was from a hot rock. Like I just was, we were just two people having a nice conversation and just connecting. Um, And that suddenly translated into this teaching career that I had for years. And, you know, like that's a great skill set to be able to pull from. And I don't know if it would have ever happened had I not been at that audition, talked to that woman, made a good impression without trying to, because I didn't know what she could do for me. I thought she was just another actress. Like I didn't know her job or what she did for a living. I don't think we even talked about that. I just think we talked about theater. Um, it's weird how those things come around. Like, you know, and so here it was like, I didn't get cast. Neither of us got cast in that play that we both auditioned for. And then I didn't get cast in the play for her theater. So I'm feeling like failure, failure. And then the next thing I get is a really steady teaching job that went for years. Well, there's a silver lining in everything. Like if you, you can take something from failing, whether yes. it's a lesson or in your case, you know, an opportunity to have you know, a whole new aspect to, to your career. And I, I can imagine, even though you said you made a ton of mistakes in, in teaching in the beginning, that had to be such a confidence booster for you, though, to have somebody who had your back to that extent that just believed so much in you. And then even after you felt like you didn't do that great of a job that they wanted to keep you on. And then that you I was in. honestly shocked because I was pretty just like, Oh, I'm so terrible at this, you know? And like, that's all. I mean, I think it was me versus like, I want to say 16 little girls, like, you know, and when I say versus it's not like they were out to get me. It's that's just a lot of kids for one teacher to manage. And then they actually let me bring in like an assistant to like, just help corral. And they were all like, none of them were even in first grade yet. They were all like preschool to kindergarten age. That's, that's an age, like, that's not like people who are super independent workers. Like you've got to like have eyes on the room. And 
I can't, I mean, there's, I've got so many stories. I won't even go into them all. Just like that, the whole experience was just like so many things of me going, what do I do? I don't know what to, I don't know how to deal with parents. I don't know how to deal with kids. I don't know how to deal with any of this. I was like 22, 23 years old. I was young, you know, so, no, I couldn't have been that young. Maybe not as many years went by. I think I said six years. So maybe I was more like 24, 25, something like that. But I was going six years. That would have made me much too old for, for when that would have been, but Anyway, yeah, that's um, you're you're right. Like those those things that happen, there something comes out of everything. And I've done plays that I've hated and met some of my closest friends in the process. Like I've done work artistically that was not that interesting, but came out with friends that I've treasured for the rest of my life. So that, that there's a good reason to say yes to like opportunities when they come up, even if you're kind of looking at it going, I don't know, like, I, like, I can't look at this and predict if this is going to be like a major amount of money, or it's going to like lead me to some next big thing or give me some level of exposure. That'll be really good for my career. But sometimes it's just the people that you meet um, or the experiences you have. And like, you never know whose career is going to like take off in a really interesting way. Even if the project you were working on wasn't a great project. Like if that's like, when you have you ever gone back and watched like, the first films of certain directors, like when, you know, when you kind of really look at a director's whole career and you look at their early work and you're going, yeah, I wonder if the actors on that film had any inkling of what this person was going to be while they were doing that, or if they were kind of like, Hmm, you know, okay. And then they become like this really beloved art auteur. Yeah. And and you're right. You just never, you never know unless you actually do it. Yeah. And it's like the whole teaching thing where you said, you know, I don't know how I'm going to handle all these kids. Like the the best way, the best way that I've learned to learn is to just dive right in. Yeah. You might make mistakes, but you know, it's like with film, you know, classes are great, but nothing beats being on a set or in your case, you know, being in front of a camera or on stage or in, in the voice booth, like nothing can replicate that. Well, and that's one of the things I think is great about being in a small market because, well, so for instance, so I went to college and I did not go to an arts college. I went to a school that really was more of like a business school, like, like that was, they were, they were known for their business college and the university more than they were known for their theater department. So in that sense, you could be like, well, you know, and I was like, well, one of the reasons I was there is because I wasn't supposed to be majoring in it. So it was not like that mattered, like when, to my parents, when we were like, you know, trying to figure out where I should go, but I got tons of stage time. You know, I know people who are in other programs, other places where, you know, you have to audition to get from the next level to the next level. And only juniors and seniors can be in the main stage show and freshmen and sophomore, you know, have to work backstage or whatever, you know, you've got these rules about it where people really have to earn it. But like right away, I was on the main stage doing stuff like not big roles necessarily right away, but right away I was performing and I've learned more performing than I have in any class I've ever taken because you were up there in front of the audience. Like, that's the thing, like you you learning what an audience is like is a vital part of being a performer if especially if you're doing a live medium but you you really start to understand especially like doing things like improv like what do people find funny and sometimes it's really depressing what people find funny like you can say something so cerebral and intellectual and smart and people are just like and then you say some stupid like you know scatological or sexual joke and people die laughing and to you it's just like that's like something you'd get off the bathroom wall somewhere. You know what I mean? It's like that level, like a 13 year old boy sex joke type thing. And people think it's the funniest thing in the world, but that's an important thing to know as a performer. Again, like you got to take the judgment out of it. You can't be like bad humor shouldn't exist. It's like, I just made a whole room full of people really happy right now with that joke. Like they died laughing at that and they're having a good time. And isn't that what they paid for? 
as opposed to me being like, no, stop. Those are not the smart jokes. I would like to tell you the smart jokes. <laughs> Let me go ahead and, you know, make some Darwin reference for you. And they're just going to be like, huh? Like, can you please go back to the bathroom jokes? You're like, nope, I'm going to tell you what you like. You don't I'm know. I'm going to tell I you do. what you think is funny. And it's like, yeah, nobody responds well to that program. <laughs> so yeah, figuring out audiences and, and understanding the kind of rhythm, like it's certainly live theater, you know, the second people are like disconnecting because they move around and they cough and they shift and they get up and walk out or they start whispering or like that's that's a telltale sign that it's not engaging. And live theater is great training ground for that, like in terms of understanding pace, like how fast do I need to move this along? How long are they going to stick with me and that before they disengage? And improv yep. too, like, like how long... Sometimes I'm always, I always feel like people who write scripts should have to take improv classes because basically, you know, if you're doing like long form improv, you're basically doing an improvised play and really understanding how long you can stretch something before your audience is like, we don't understand, you know, the character relationship objective where that's not clear enough right now, but people will hang with that for a little bit, but if it goes on too long and and then they're going to like change the channel or, you know, certainly now where it's like everything's on demand. It's like, you don't have, there's too many options. You can't afford to let people disengage. Well, there's just so much content out there that you know somebody yeah. can jump from one show to the next. They can go from one streaming platform to the next. So yep. no, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's something I was curious about as someone who has a background in theater and improv, how did it help train you for your transition to live action acting as well as, as voice acting? When you say live action, you mean like on camera stuff? Correct. Like oh, being on yeah, a set, live action acting. Yeah. I mean, theater, I think, is the best training ground of the world. So many people will come up, especially at like conventions and say, you know, I'm really interested in getting to be a voice actor. What do you recommend? And I'm like, go get some training, like go to your local university, like even just take the intro to acting class there. See if you like it. Because like there's commercial work sometimes can be about having a pretty or interesting sounding voice and being like, you know, at US Bank, blah, 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 blah. There's, there's a fair amount of that, but that's not what most people want to do. Like when, certainly, well, certainly at a convention now, maybe there's like some commercial convention. Everyone's like, that's what I want to do. But the people I meet who are coming to, you know, get signatures from people who are doing voiceover for characters on, you know, cartoons and movies and shows and uh, video games like that, that's acting. I mean, that is acting work. You are simulating rage and fear and anger and love. And like, you're, you know, you're in a horrible, terrible situations and, you know, and like taking different levels of what they call damage, you know, like people are crashing into you or trying to kill you or you're killing someone else. Like that's all the type of stuff. And so being able to portray emotion, that's a big deal. And you learn that in theater, like, you know, and especially then having improv in that mix improv improv I came to later, like I did theater training and then I did kind of improv. I fell into improv. Improv was actually kind of just a fluke. I had no interest really in being involved in improv, but that when I moved to Portland, I auditioned for a couple of things and that's what people kept hiring me to do. And they were paying me. I was trying to get into regular theater. I'm like, I'm a dramatic actress. And everyone's like, well, we don't want you for that. And so then all of a sudden, all these like comedy improv things would like, we'll take you and we'll pay you. So I, I was doing it, but I had no training. And I, for at least two or three years doing that would sometimes have great shows and sometimes have terrible shows and not really understand why it worked and why it didn't. Like I, I had a lot of intuition towards it, but not a lot of technique 
technique is so valuable because you can fall back on your technique when other things aren't working. So I finally went and took some training. I went to like the Loose Moose School up in uh, Calgary, Canada, where Keith Johnstone, who's like, you know, the father of improv and wrote the book Impro, he teaches there. And um, I took their program and I came out of that and I was like, okay, now I'm starting to understand when it's failing, this is why. It's not about standing up there and being funny. It's about storytelling. And it's like, you know, I was talking about earlier about understanding platform tilt. Like you can only stay in a platform for so long before it has to change positive or negative and the way story is crafted. And once you understand that, and once you have that ability to like improv within a story frame as a character you just made up, and I've even done like musical improv, which is wilder because they're like playing a song you've never heard and you're suddenly guessing where that's going to go musically and lyrically, like you're making up the lyrics and singing a song you've never heard. And then these brilliant piano players are just kind of like working with you on that. And that's, those are the people that truly knock me out as musicians who can improv with someone who's doing that. Um, that when you get that, then every, it was kind of like, to me, improv training was like when you run with weights on your ankles. And then when I went back to theater, so I did theater, I did it like a, just a glut of improv and nothing else for a few years and then I went back into theater. I finally started getting into the theater circuit and I was getting cast a lot. And I was so much more fun as an actor. Like that's what I kept getting feedback is you're so fun. You don't ever do anything the same way twice. Like you, you have so many choices. That was all that improv training because there was no script anymore. And I was just like trying different things all the time. And it loosened me up. And I was a person who really needed that because I was pretty uptight. Like, you know what I mean? I took myself a little too seriously. I don't think I was a lot of fun prior to that. It was, it's weird to me that I was getting cast in comedy improv when I wasn't particularly fun um, or loose or even funny. I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe it's other people thought. So maybe my seriousness was like, what was funny? I don't know. I honestly, it's still a puzzle to me, like why I did so well in that arena with no training. And I didn't particularly love it. So like, how did that happen and why? I couldn't even explain. But when I went back to theater, I was so appreciative of everything that I had been learning and that I'd been working in that so intensively. And I toured a ton with improv. And when you tour with the same group of people and you're doing these improvised shows every night for nights on end, and you're like together all day traveling in vans and, you know, like all over the Midwest and, you know, like just the, the way you work at the beginning of a tour to the way you work at the end, like the chemistry and the ability to kind of read each other's minds and set each other up and make each other look good, that supportiveness and that real understanding. If you're doing that, if you're like, if I'm like, I know Derek loves to play a robot, so I'm going to set him up to be a robot in this scene. And you're like, yes, my friend is here and we're going to play and we're out there having such a great time together. How much fun then the audience has watching that. Like, have you ever heard that like Stephen Colbert, Steve Carell, Amy Poehler, Tina Fey, I think all those people were like, um, Amy Sedaris were all in um, Second City right around the same time. Like, mm -hmm. and they all kind of performed together. And now we look at all how brilliant all of them are individually. Can you imagine for a group of people who are working together consistently and now just like kind of knowing their work individually, imagine that group of people together in close camaraderie on a weekly basis, what those shows must have been like. I would love to talk to people who like have lived in Chicago a long time and were regulars at Second City and just hear their stories about what the audience experience was for that. Because it had to be magical to watch artists kind of at the height of their youth and fun and like everything they're learning, exploring and, and doing that together. I just think that would have been so exciting to watch. I My mind's blown just at the thought of that because I, I'm... I've growing up, you know, whose line is it anyway? was a huge show yes. on TV and it's still one of my favorite shows of all time to this the, day. The Be British version or the Drew Carey version? 
Um, I grew up more with the Drew Carey version, but I love both. I've gone yeah. back and watched the British version since then. Yeah. But I, I, that's where I really fell in love with and started respecting the craft of not just theater acting, but with improv. Because you, yeah. you don't know what's going to happen, but you know, you and other improv actors just play it off so naturally. And it's just, it, it's a, it's a skill that I will admit I'm extremely jealous of because it, it's just, it's so fat. It, it's a work of art unto itself. You know, film is an art acting is an art improv in itself to me is its own art form because of just the hilarity yeah. that you can, that you can cause because of it. Cause you never know what's going to happen. You never see the same, same show twice. Exactly. And and you as the actor, you just have no idea where it's going half the time or what someone might do that might surprise you or, you know, different ways that you can respond to things like, yeah, it's, it's incredibly exciting to watch and to be in and talk about being in a dance with your audience. Right. Like talk about like not only am I feeling at you as my fellow performer and like kind of trying to see where you're going and what you're thinking and what you're doing. I'm also like still like keeping my eye on the audience and their level of engagement and what's going on. Like your senses are so alive and you're so focused and you're so present. If, if, if it's going well, like if you're sitting over there trying to pre-plan, it's not going well at all. You're usually having a really bad night, but when you're in the zone with it and when you're working with other really generous, funny people who you think are really generous and fun, like you like them, like that's, it's it's hard to like get a better high than that to like come off this improv show that you guys created together and you know if you see long form shows which are like improvised plays you know like they've got a first second and third act sort of a thing and they've got an, a story arc and all these different things that happen and to be an audience member and go that's only existed once I will no one will ever see that again I just happened to be there for it that night and to be a part of that and yeah, it's it's very exciting stuff. And then when you get into like situations, um, even on camera, where like someone goes up on lines, that ability to just continue the scene and help someone get back on, like I don't get super scared about that anymore. Like about being on stage with someone and someone forgetting lines and jumping, and people do. <laughs> it happens all the time. But I always feel pretty like unless I, unless I, there's only been a couple times where I've been in shows where. The shows were crafted in such a way that my lines didn't really overlap with the other people's like they were it wasn't like a dialogue type thing like we were monologuing near each other or something like that there's times where you really can't help people but in situations where you can it feels so good to be able to be like it's going to be okay like we're going to get we're, we're going to work this out and it's not going to be the end of the world we'll just like improv our way through these moments till we can kind of get back on and people get their footing and to not feel like panicked and like oh my god i just need to leave the stage right now and i bet most of the time the audience doesn't know that there's like something's wrong or there's some type of panic between the performers it's so funny audiences are so like you know i i know people get like stage fright or they get really worried but it's again like we were saying earlier how many times have you gone to a play or a movie and been like i hope this sucks like the audience is so on your side they want to have a good night like they want it to be great so they're like hope i mean maybe you're maybe the person who auditioned for your role wants you to suck like that person might be out there but that's like one person like most of the audience who laid down i don't know 40 50 bucks to see that they want to have a good time and they want you to be good and like have you ever noticed like a, like if you go see a comedy that's not very good people will still laugh a lot in the first few minutes of the play 
because their intention is to be happy. And then as it continues to suck, then the laughing tapers off. And pretty soon they're like, why are you guys so bad? Why are you ruining my Friday night? Like there, you can, you can sense that kind of resentment of like, I'm working so hard to like you. I am sitting out here in this chair, working so hard to have a good time. And it would be nice if you would meet me halfway as a performer. Like you can feel that. And, and I've been in those shows where it's like, yeah, the show is not good. And that's why, but I always noticed in the beginning of the night, people were more like, ha ha, yeah, okay, well, I'm here to like this. And as opposed to, I think sometimes people imagine your audience out there is like a bunch of people, like newspaper critics, you know, who are just like looking for something to pit a apart or something. And I think even those people, like the more shows you have to go see, the more you are delighted when something's good. I was on this, this um, committee called the Drammy Committee in Portland, where you, it's basically like the Tonys for Portland, but you have to go see like all these shows, like you know, 50, 60 shows. Do you know how hard it is to sit through that many shows when they're not good? Like you love the people who give you a good night. Like you're so grateful to them because it's just like, oh, thank you. Like I scrambled for parking tonight and like rushed here and just made it and you're good. And thank you for that. So I do think, you know, I don't remember why I was talking about that. I got off on a tangent. Do you remember what we were talking about? Too? No, Going no, we, were, we were just talking about the, I, I was talking about the, like, the specific respect that I have for, for improv because In- just the one, the courage to do something like that. Cause I I've taken an acting class. I took one several years ago and it's, it's not for me. Like I respect the craft. I respect those who do it and those that are great at it, but it's not me. Like my place is behind the camera. I know that. That's a great thing to know, but it's great that you took a class because I think once you do that, then it helps you know how to direct actors. Like you, you understand the information that they don't have. Like a lot of directors I've worked with on like small independent films. One of the things I, I wish that they understood was like the more information you share with me as an actor, the better I can do because there's, there's times where if you don't know, if, if you can't tell if it hasn't been like outlined in the script or they change their mind on something and you see the final product and you're like, if I'd known you were going to do that there, I could have set it up here in my scene in a really interesting way for you. But you, all I had was like the, the pages that you gave me. And I just like was working with that. So the more, what you can't manage what you don't know. So like the more, information I have as an actor, then the more I can bring and collaborate with you and, um, you know, be like, what if we did this? Or what if we did that? And, you know, I know you're going for this over here. So what if we did this here? And sometimes, sometimes people in those roles will have really good ideas around that. And other times not, and you'll have to say no to that. But I do think, I do think understanding actors by being an actor for a little bit, like you did is such a smart thing to do because it's always going to help, you know, how to talk to them and what to arm them with to get the best work out of them. Well, I've said since I've been into to film and really you know learning the process of how films are made, everyone should have at least a basic understanding of a, the other person's job. So like as, as an actor, I feel like you should have a basic understanding of what goes on behind the camera, whether it's director photography, oh. writing, directing, and vice versa. Telling, you know, the, with- telling the sound guy you're going to yell on a line so you don't – he can adjust so that, that you have usable sound. Right. Like if you're like just arbitrarily screaming, that is, makes it really hard for them to like ever use any audio that you create. And like I will check with people. I'm like, hey, I think I'm going to yell on this part right here. It's coming up so you can turn your headphones down and like adjust the gain and stuff. And they're like, thank you. Because that that's what film is. And, and, and the same goes for television as well. It, it's all a, a collaboration. And yeah. it's, you know, a project, whether it's an episode of a TV show, a short film or a feature, it's a machine. 
and yes. we're all cogs in the machine. We all have to yeah. work together in order for the machine to run. So, and if, you, you if, ask, go, go ahead. I was going to say, if if one part, if we all aspire to make you know the other aspects that we're not involved with successful, then it'll be a great project. It'll be a success. Well, and you were asking earlier about kind of that transition from live stuff to on-camera voiceover stuff. Like that's one of the biggest things for me that I had to get used to is, you know, if you work on a play, you do all the rehearsals, then you run it and you run it night after night. And you are living that experience every night. Like if you're working at like a place like Portland Center Stage, you're doing performances Tuesday through Sunday with Mondays off and sometimes two on the weekend, like two a day on the weekend. And so you're, you're doing that sometimes in like a Christmas show, like 10 times a week, like you really live that project and then it's over and it's done. Film, you work three or four days sometimes, you know, depending on like what it is, if it's a small film, you might shoot three or four days or whatever, or sometimes longer, but then you go away for this huge period of time while all these other people work on it. And I frequently forget that I even did the thing until all of a sudden they'll be like sending me the cut of it, or they'll say it's entered in this film festival and here this is going on. And I'm like, right, I did that. And you're not allowed to talk about anything while you're in it because there's all these NDAs. So it's not like you're talking about it anywhere. You know, you, you, I literally forget about projects that I've done until suddenly someone will like send me an email and say, Hey, promote this on social media. And I'm like, what? Oh, that was like a year and a half ago. That's been one of the weirdest transitions is having stuff that you've worked on in this huge span of time, because theater is so immediate. It is literally immediate from you rehearse and then you open and you run and it's over and then the experience of doing it is immediate, like how it's doing, how it's going, what people are thinking, thinking is a night to night experience. And then film is like this thing where you have no sense of what it's going to look like really while you're working on it, unless you are doing multiple roles where you're doing some behind the camera or people happen to show you stuff. But a lot of times people don't even show you what they shot. You just do your job and you go home and you go away from the project and it films other locations sometimes that you're not involved in and all these other things happen. And then one day you sit down and go, I don't even know which of my scenes made it into this. So that's weird. That's been like one of the weirdest transitions of like working between those two mediums. Like, you know what theater is going to look like. You're doing it every day during rehearsal. Like you have a really clear sense of what that project is going to be. And then a really clear sense of how people feel about it. Cause they're either like snoring in the audience or leaving or talking or wrapped with attention and jumping to their feet afterwards and film, you're like, oh, no, like, I don't know what people are going to think of this project because I don't know what it's going to look like. I have no sense of it. Yeah. The, the actual production is just the tip of the iceberg. Post is when the fun stuff happens. Like yeah. The, and I'm never a part of that. It, it's fun. And with, with my short that I did a couple of years ago, I, I also edited the film as well. So that, that was, uh, I, I've always liked the post side of things because editing to me is just so fascinating because it's like yeah. it's like putting a puzzle together you know as, well, as as directing it you know i had pretty much visually what i wanted to do but still seeing it on my computer and putting the scenes together and then adding you know the sound mix and the score and everything it's just literally like putting a puzzle together and you're like it's it's a well, movie one thing I think is so fascinating about film is that I just realize how much the camera is like this, like that, like the camera gets tells the director and the camera tell you where you get to look in the story. You know, if you're looking at a stage and you're seeing all these bodies up there, you can choose what you watch. Like, and you know, yes, they might put a spotlight on something or yes, there may be something big, but if you're one of these people who likes to look around, like you can still like look over and watch that one person because you feel like it, where you only get to look at what's in the frame. And yes, you can like maybe watch 
someone in the background if you choose to, but you know, if a camera like going in, you know, for a close-up shot, like that's what you get to look at. Like there's so much more directorial um, story control in film that is is a little bit more of a free-for-all in theater because there's just lots of people up there and things that could happen. Like if you put a kid or a dog up there, forget it, everyone's gonna watch that. Um, we're in film, you could just be like, <laughs> I worked on a project with a guy who was like, I could tell like he was just irritating the hell of the director the whole time because the director kept saying, do less, do less, do less. And then he continued to just do as much as he was doing. And when I saw the final thing, they literally had just like moved him out of frame. They finally just took, like, he was not in it. Like they just, he didn't have a main role. Like, you know, he was doing stuff and that's why they kept saying do less as he was really pulling focus. And I think they finally just were like, just move the frame over. And they just did. And he just like, I'm like, he's nowhere in that project. Like he might be, he's briefly in the background, but like all his stuff that he was like doing, thinking this is going to get me my moment. It's like, they don't have to look at you. It's just not stage where they have to look at you. You can be like really irritating and distracting on stage and everyone on stage is like giving you the stink eye, but you do that on film and it's just like, we'll cut you out. We'll cut you out of the shot. We'll cut you out of the edit. That can all go away. We always find a way. <laughs> and sometimes it's well-deserved. True. Like if so, you ask someone that, they should stop. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So talk to me about your transition to voice acting and some of the, maybe like a, was there a challenge for you to transition from you know, acting on, whether it's on stage or on a set to being in a small room with a microphone and a script? Um, you know, I mean, the kind of luxury of voice acting is that, you know, it's not live and you don't have to worry about what you look like and it's not memorized. So you throw those three elements in voice acting felt like one of the easiest things I was doing. So when you talk about transition, it was just kind of like, sweet, this is a great gig. I'm getting paid to not do my hair and makeup to not have to memorize a line and worry about getting anything wrong and to be able to do it over and over again because it's not live if I screw it up. And so, you know, that's that's actually, it, it just felt like kind of a vacation in that sense where I was just like, ooh, this is easy. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I voice acting also, I mean, all of film and entertainment you know, fascinates me. But one, one thing about voice acting is, you know, I've watched behind the scenes documentaries of say like Aladdin and watch Robin Williams be the voice of the genie and the fact that he's essentially just himself because he's being so animated with his hands and really getting into the role is as a voice actor, do, does that help oh, when, yeah. you're, when you're getting into the role of that character is still For essentially sure. act as if you're yeah. on set? And especially like video game stuff, you know, like if I am like throwing something like the characters throwing something or getting hit, like I will physically be like, <gasps> you know, like I will jerk this for anyone listening to this, like the visual as I just like threw myself back. Like, I mean, you know, I will like physically throw something forward. I will, you know, um, sometimes to get hit in the chest, I will like, you know, hit myself in the chest with that. Um, physically moving around and using your hands. And even when I do audiobooks, I tend to talk with my hands. I'm pretty, I'm Italian, you know, I'm someone who like gestures a lot anyway. So the more ramrod straight, I, you know, if I'm really stiff and still, I do feel like it translates into the performance in a negative way. Like when you try to be like really um, still, I think inhabiting that in your body. So yeah, it is a lot, especially any kind of a cartoon or something like that's just, they turn, don't they turn like, I mean, I feel like it works both ways that they turn, 
animated work into live work and vice versa. Like you see that happening all the time. Um, it's no different. And that's again, why I'm like, it's not just about, can you do a funny voice? It's like, can you act? And even for things I've done, I do dubbing sometimes like for films, like for foreign films. And one of the things they were excited about when I went in and auditioned for the first one is that I had a theater background because they were like, oh, you have acting training. That's great. And I had never done it before, but it was a really natural fit because you're matching a performance of someone who's already done it. You're like watching this Argentinian actress be upset and emote and you're doing her voice. So you need to sound upset too. You can't just like say it like there's nothing to it. Like that's when people say it's like a bad dubbing job is when it feels like there's no emotion to it. Someone's just reading words. So yes, um, all those things completely inform each other. And yes, you bring all that physical life of acting into the booth. I can't tell you how many times I've hit the mic by accident. I've hit the music stand. Um, you wear quiet clothes for that reason. Like I would never wear like a nylon jacket or something really stiff because I move around so much, even for commercials, like even for that, like I just have a tendency to like use my hands and use my body when I talk, um, even for that kind of thing, because you sound different than when you're trying to hold still. No, you're absolutely right. Because if you're someone, like you mentioned, you talk with your hands a lot. Part of voice acting is sounding natural. Like it's yeah. not sounding like you're acting, even though you are. And you talked about improv. I mean, and I can't even tell you the amount of jobs, like of auditions I get for even commercials that are like, send us your best comedian improvs because we want you to do it once as written. And then we want you to do another take where you improvise with it. And we want to hear what they come up with. That's a huge part of what I do. And lots of improvising, even doing things like video games, if, especially if the team is collaborative, which is really fun when you're like, what if I did this? And they're like, yeah, that's great. Do that. And they're excited about it. And they like it. Like you bring, and sometimes people are clear, like they're like, no, 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 we want you to do this way. Totally fine. But you know, that people are open to a conversation where you have maybe an interesting idea and they want to hear it. That's, that is a very satisfying way to work. I think like, I don't, I'm okay 100% with showing up and being told what to do and doing that. If someone is very specific and clear, I can totally work with that, especially if I if they've really shared their vision with me and I get it. And I'm like, yes, this all makes sense to me. But then there's the people who are like really loose about it too, who are like, they want you to kind of, they're like, yeah, let's do a take as written, but then let's do another take and let's just see what you do. I just booked a short film and we did it once as written. And then they said, we want you to do it again and then just continue the scene. Like the scene ends here, but we want you to just continue it. And I said, okay, so we did. And then I got cast and she said, I'm actually rewriting that scene based on a lot of what you guys did in the audition. When like the director just wrote back and was like, they were actually, you know, reconstructing that part because they liked a lot of things that came out with you and this lead actress. And I was like, that's so cool. But that, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with film is a collaboration. Yeah. And I, I'm with you that if there's a director who has a very clear mind and clear vision for what they want, it's great. But as I'll say this to you as, you know, as someone who's directed before and talking to an actor, yeah, you as a director and a writer, you might write the lines of dialogue, but the actors are the ones who are actually performing them. They have to get into the minds of the characters yes. and they can add little nuances and little quirks that, you know, you may not, as a writer-director, you may not have thought of, but it actually works better for the character. And I, I just think to completely shun that away would would be wrong because, like I said, yeah. actors are the ones who are bringing the characters to life physically. Yeah. 
I, yeah, I think collaboration, like if, if you've got a group of really smart people working together, coming from all these different disciplines and you're open to ideas, there's just no telling, you know, what kind of magic you can create. Absolutely. So as we start to wrap up here, I know this is primarily a filmmaking podcast, but I am a video game fan, as, <laughs> uh, as my friends know. Uh, you are currently the voice of Rosalina, one of the now more prevalent characters in the Mario Brothers franchise. So how how did you get that role and how has your experience been uh, bringing that character to life? You know, it, I'm the third person to voice it. So I, in terms of like, I didn't, I always want to be clear with that. That's not like I created that. Like I, I picked it up, you know, after right. two other people had already voiced it. Um, but, uh, yeah, like the, it, it was, it's not that fascinating of a story. I got it through my agent, you know, I got the audition through my agent, um, auditioned for it. The, they, I sent in an initial audition and then they wanted to do a directed audition. Um, so I did that and, and I, I've told the story a lot, but I like, that was the game that was right before super Mario 3d world. That's the first game I did. Um, she turns into a cat in that game and I, nobody knew that at that point, right? Because the game wasn't even out, but they had, I did the initial thing. And then they said, okay, now do it like a cat. And I was like, what? And they said, oh, she turns into a cat in this game. And I was like, oh. So then I was like, just kind of making all these cat noises because I just wasn't really sure. And I had not done video games at this point, really. Like, I think I had done maybe a couple little small projects, but nothing like, nothing like, you know, a game for Nintendo, nothing that big. So, um, I remember when it was over, they just kind of came back on the mic and I could hear that they were laughing and they were like, okay, thank you. And I was like, I don't know if they were like laughing in a good way or bad. Like people were like, that was ridiculous or they liked it. I, I just couldn't tell. And I went to the engineer who was out there because I was in a different city than the people who were listening. And I said, how do you think that went? And he's like, I don't know. I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> I was like, okay. So I just went away and I was like, I have no idea how that, if I'm going to get this or not. Um, and then I did. And it, it's just been such a positive experience. They are such nice people to work for. It's so fun to do. It doesn't feel like work to me at all. When I'm doing something like that, it does not feel like work. Like there's plenty of things I've done that feel like work, but that would not be one of them. So. And that's yeah. when, you know, you found something great when you can, yeah get paid to do something that doesn't feel like work. Yeah. And anytime I've done, I've done like fire emblem fates for Nintendo too. And, and just like working on Genshin impact and those sessions just, they just fly by. Like, you're just like, Oh, we're done already. All right. Like, and it's sometimes, you know, it'll be like four hours and you just didn't feel it because it was a good time. What's your all time favorite Mario game? I'm, I'm a big fan of Mario Kart. Yeah. You know, like that's classic. Those, all, all the Mario Kart ones, are, yeah, those are really fun to do. I love racing against other people with that and just kind of the camaraderie of it. But but a Super Mario 3D World definitely, hold, because it was, I mean, from the, the sense that that was the first game that I ever did, like uh, that holds a place in my heart because of that. Yeah, Although can, I just, and I just recently saw the Super Mario Strikers stuff. Like people have been like posting a lot about that. That looks really cool. Yeah, it looks insane. Yeah. It looks really cool though. I, yeah. I, I will beautiful. say one th quick thing about Mario Kart. It, the collaboration, the camaraderie can be great, but you can test friendships oh, with I know. Mario Kart as, <laughs> as I've done in many, many years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what is a one piece of advice that you could give to an aspiring filmmaker? Mm. And we've been talking a lot about, you know, like, yeah, try, trying, you know, not worrying about failure, just doing it. What What is one piece of advice that you could give? You know, I say this less because I'm not a filmmaker. I mean, I've been involved in a lot of films and a lot of small independent 
you know, startup films, like lots of really small projects, some of them that have never seen the light of day. But what I do, what I think is really interesting and what, what I really respect is that anyone who has like a really strong point of view where it's like, this doesn't look quite like anyone else's thing. And when you watch it, you know it. Like Wes Anderson is one of my favorite filmmakers. And it's because when you watch a Wes Anderson movie, you know what you're watching. And it was so funny because I was watching Fantastic Mr. Fox because I had gotten Disney Plus because I wanted to see Hamilton. And then I just like, let me catch up on all these movies I haven't seen. And Fantastic Mr. Fox was on there. And I had forgotten that he had done that film. And I'm watching it and I'm like, this feels like a Wes Anderson movie. And all of a sudden I looked at the credits. I'm like, it is one. Like, I mean, without knowing it, you know it. Like, and if you watch like even like Bottle Rocket, like his first movie, it's not where things are now, like with French Dispatch, but you see the seeds of that, of that person's vision, you know, or like you, you kind of know when you're watching a movie or like, I love, um, is it Alexander Payne who did like Election and Citizen Ruth? Like I love his movies and um, just a very specific point of view. So I think rather than trying to figure out what people want, doing what you think is interesting and trusting that the right collaborators will you will find them and find each other and you will make something incredible and it's not necessarily for everyone but I don't think that's a bad thing I think this thing of like I gotta make something everyone loves just ends up a little too vanilla at some point like it's like it's not bad it's fine it's sweet it's good but it's not like exciting it's and so I always think having a strong point of view and not being afraid to stick to that point of view even even if you're getting haters or even if you're getting uh, pushback on it or like people think it's weird because there's a lot of things that people thought was weird that is now considered like revolutionary and classic like I'm, I'm a huge David Bowie fan and like trust me, I mean people thought he was so weird when he came out and all the Ziggy Star stuff it's like what is this this is weird and that he was just even wearing makeup and like women's clothing like that was just such a weird not anymore but at the time but talk about someone who like did what they were interested in doing had a really specific vision stuck to it and now is viewed as like iconic because of that. And it's it, it's that whole thing of like really like figuring out and then, then not being afraid to change. Cause then you hear about like someone like him, especially that is he that you always kind of know you're watching him, but his stuff was so different from album to album to project to project. It would be very different because he was trying out things that was interesting to him. And so artistically, to me, that that's something I kind of aspire to of like, yeah, not being afraid to do something that's a little weird and a little different. Um and yeah yeah i've been podcasting now for like nine years and i've never heard anyone say that specific piece of advice on any of my shows before really I, I, I love it yeah i love I it yeah it's 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 tough to be different and almost in a way be proud of it because i think deep down part of everyone wants to fit in but yeah. it, it's also finding you know, what makes you tick and what makes you happy. Right. And even if it is different, doing it and not being afraid to do it. I, I love that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Because you just never know when it's going to like hit the right person. And and the more you read up on these people who like, you know, had these, like their, some of their first projects and how things failed or nobody was interested or whatever, but they just were like, I don't care. I like it. And I'm going to keep doing it this way. Like I, even if it's not my cup of tea, I admire the hell out of stuff like that. And I want to be a part of stuff like that. To me, that's an exciting person to work with, even if I don't get it. And I've worked on plays for people. I've worked on a lot of new plays where I'm like, 
I don't know how people are going to respond to this, but I sure like being a part of this process because I'm just watching someone in their zone. And to get to be next to that, it's exciting. It's infectious, too. Yeah. Yeah. And not everyone gets it, but that's okay. Yeah. No, like, you, can, you can read all sorts of bad reviews on stuff, you know, that, that, again, later people appreciate. Sometimes things are ahead of their time. It's very true. For sure. What's your favorite movie of all time? Oh, God. <laughs> I kid everybody with that question. I was going to say that is like the hardest question because I like so many different things. I mean, like I will say, like some of those Alexander Payne movies, like Citizen, like if I had to give like top five, like there's got to be like Wes Anderson and Alexander Payne in the mix. Um, like movies I could watch over and over with. I mean, Election Citizen Ruth, um, Royal Tenenbaums. Um, Royal Tenenbaums is great. I love, I love Darjeeling Limited too. A lot of people don't like that one as well, but I love that one. They're all so good in, in so many different ways. And then I'm trying to think of like other movies. It's always so hard off the top of my head, but there's just, there, there's, I just think of that it's in movies for moods, right? Like Encino Man fits a certain mood. Um, and there's certain movies that, that I like, like there's movies that I have, like really, there's, there's a really random movie called The Last of Sheila. Um, that's got like Richard Benjamin and James Mason and James Colburn and Raquel Welch. And uh, what's her name? Oh, I'm not remembering her name, but like you've got this like cast and it's kind of like a mystery. Um, and my family and I had watched it on like that. We taped it off TV and my family watched movies together a lot. And we watched this movie and it cut off the end and it's a mystery. And we didn't know who did what it just like was cut off. We lost like the last 15 minutes and we had to wait a whole year for that movie to come back on. Cause this was like pre when you couldn't even rent it anywhere. It was such a random film. And I remember we would like watch the part we had and we would try to kind of figure it out. And then like a year later, we finally understood the ending of it. Um, but it was written by Sondheim and Anthony Perkins. And I didn't know who either of those people were at the time when I saw it, but they both, both of them like created puzzles for the New York Times. And then they wrote this movie. It, it, it's dated to what it is, but I suggest like just watching it in terms of like, it's just a quirky movie and there's some great performances in it. That's a movie sentimentally for me because of that experience of like watching it so many times, trying to figure it out, waiting so long for it to come back. And then there it was like, I own it now because- that was a, and, but then we also have like Gene Wilder, like that uh, Sherlock Holmes smarter brother was a movie that my family loved. So we were like screwball Mel Brooks type stuff as well. So I have like sentimental favorites for that reason. And then um, movies that like kind of hit, hit my aesthetic now. And that's the great thing about movies is you have different favorite movies for different moods, like you were saying. Yeah. So it's, it's tough to really pick just one. Yeah. So I'm, I'm right there with you. Uh, do you have a website or social media you'd like to plug so the viewers and listeners can follow you? Sure. Um, my social media, I'm mostly on Instagram, and it's just my name, Laura Faye Smith, and then Faye is F-A-Y-E. So L-A-U-R-A-F-A-Y-E-S-M-I-T-H. You can follow me there. I'm same handle on Twitter. Those are the main two social medias I have. And then I have a website, laurafaysmith.com. It's just a lot of clips of my work and stuff. But if you want updates about conventions or projects I'm working on or whatever, I, I have a film that's at a film festival right now. It'll be at Marina Del Rey this weekend, a movie called The Leap. Um, and I think we just got into the Pasadena Film Festival with that too. And that was one that was done like a year ago. I completely forgot about it. And then I won like a nominated for like a best supporting actress or something like that for that one. And I'm like, what, what movie? And it's like, oh, right, that movie. I did like a day's work on that. I completely forgotten. Another one of those gems that just yeah. happened to pop up, you know, later yeah. on down the line. 
Well, Laura, it was great getting to chat with you again. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Thank you so much, Derek. It was lovely talking with you. Thank you again to Laura Faye Smith for that awesome conversation. As I mentioned in the intro, hopefully I'll get the chance to interview her on the Derek Diamond Experience at some point in the future. And thank you to everyone who's been listening to these re-released episodes over the last uh, now nearly two months. Uh, it's been a, a great sabbatical, um, had a really productive summer. I know we're still technically in summer, but um, I have decided to bring the show back a little bit early. And it, it's funny because um, I was looking at you know different conventions that are going on over the next month or so. And I do this periodically, but I just send out a mass amount of emails to see who I can get on the show. And I said, if I get anyone that will come on the show, I will bring it back early. Well, that has happened. So the show is coming back early. The show will be back for sure a week from today, uh, July 24th with actor Zane Haney, who uh, recently starred in a film called Unfix that premiered at the Chinese Theater in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago. And his role, he plays the lead character, and it deals with a lot of really heavy subject matter. So it was great to kind of pick his brain on how he prepped for the role, what drew him to it, and his overall experience making the film. But the show may come back a little bit earlier. You might get a new episode later this week, um, th this week is, there's a lot of moving parts in my personal life, so I don't know if the interview is going to happen. I don't want to say who it's with because I don't want to jinx myself, but I will say it is with a notable voice actor. I will say that, but, uh, yeah, just stay tuned to social media and you'll see if the show comes back later this week or it will be back for sure a week from today. Until then, you can check out past episodes of this podcast at linktree.com slash ddiamondpodcast. If you want to subscribe to my YouTube channel, the podcast feed, follow me on social media, everything is in one location, linktree.com slash ddiamondpodcast. And if you could, please leave a review. The more reviews the show gets, the more visible it is to someone who's searching for filmmaking podcast or podcast about movies in general. And with that, I think that's going to wrap up this episode. So thank you again to everyone who's been listening to these re-released episodes. And we'll see you guys back here later this week or next Monday for a brand new episode of the Derek Diamond Experience podcast. Podcast.